You are listening to Episode 13 of Stoicism on Fire. Hello everyone, this is Chris Fisher, welcoming you to the Stoicism on Fire podcast, where the ancient practice of Stoic philosophy as a way of life and rational form of spirituality is still alive. Finally, we come to the topic that many people have been waiting for. Ethics. The fruit of the Stoic orchard. The ancient Stoics offered three similes to demonstrate the holistic and interdependent nature of their philosophical system. They offered an egg, an animal, and an orchard. In the orchard simile, the fence that protects the orchard represents logic, the soil and trees represent physics, and the fruit of the orchard represents ethics. Now, we all know that there's only one reason to have an orchard, and that is to produce fruit. And many people today come to Stoicism with only one interest in mind. They want the fruit of Stoicism. They want only the ethics. Some will proclaim, I don't need or want all that other stuff. I just want the ethics. They may argue that the fruit is the most important thing, which is true. However, they make the mistake of concluding that we don't really need to pay much attention, if any at all, to that fence and to the rest of the orchard, the soil, and the trees that produce the fruit. They assume that they can just focus on the fruit. After all, they argue, ethics is the only thing that really matters. So we should focus our efforts on that because the rest is simply unnecessary. Now, there are two major problems with the idea that we can ignore the logic and physics and focus exclusively on the ethics of Stoicism. First, the Stoics offered the similes of the egg, the animal, and the orchard for the express purpose of warning us that the system cannot be deconstructed without consequence. Obviously, fruit cannot be produced without trees, without soil, and a protective fence is certainly helpful. Second, Stoic ethical practice is not a matter of going to the supermarket and purchasing some excellent character and well-being. In Stoicism, the orchard is akin to your soul, your psyche. Fortunately, the ancient Stoics already developed the model for a productive orchard. They proved that that model bears good fruit. However, the fruit is not there waiting for us to pluck or purchase. We must till the soil of our own psyche. We must remove those old weeds, plant new trees, and nurture the orchard until it bears fruit. That will take time, effort, and quite frankly, some patience. No one can do the work for us. The Stoics did not promise any shortcuts. Unless, of course, you want to take the path of the cynics. So let's take a look at the foundation of Stoic ethics. A.A. A. Long summarizes the Stoic philosophical system and highlights the connection between its physics and ethics in his book, Hellenistic Philosophy. I'm going to highlight his thought in eight points. One, the Stoics prided themselves on the coherence of their philosophical system. Two, they believe the universe is amenable to rational explanation because it is rationally organized. Three, mankind derives their rationality from the same logos that is embodied in the universe. Four, cosmic and human events are consequences of that very same logos. Five, mankind 
is related to cosmic nature, or God, through the rationality of the Logos. 6. Recognition of the implications of our relationship to cosmic nature will inspire us to live up to the excellence of our human potential by living in agreement with cosmic nature. 7. Natural philosophy, or science, and logic are tools that enable us to know what facts are true. 8. The coherence of Stoicism is based upon the belief that natural events are so causally related to one another that on them a set of propositions can be supported which will enable a man to plan a life wholly at one with nature or God. Elsewhere, A.A. Long argues, to live virtuously and to be happy as a Stoic, you need an understanding of nature which presupposes the truths of Stoic theology and physics. It should now be clear what I mean by the Stoics' theocratic postulate. Happiness, describable both as living in accordance with virtue and as living in agreement with nature, consists in obedience to something called Zeus, or divine and universal law. Happiness is a virtuous person's good flow in life, and a good flow of life requires harmonizing one's own rational nature with the will of the administrator of the whole, i.e., living as God the universal causal principle prescribes to those who share his rational nature. A.A. Long and other scholars of Stoicism did not invent the connection between physics and ethics. It is there in the surviving texts. According to the Stoics, nature, which includes both human nature and cosmic nature, provides us with a normative ethical guide. For the ancient Stoics, ethics was integrated with the concept of a rationally ordered cosmos. Here's what Chrysippus, the Stoic scholar most responsible for systematizing Stoic theory, wrote about the connection between physics and ethics. Quote, For there is no other more suitable way of approaching the theory of good and evil, or the virtues, or happiness, than from the universal nature, and from the dispensation of the universe. For the theory of good and evil must be connected with these, since good and evil have no better beginning or point of reference, and physical speculation is to be undertaken for no other purpose than for the discrimination of good and evil. Many moderns object to the essential connection the Stoics made between physics, a model of reality, and ethics, a model for reality, because it challenges their prior commitment to a secular worldview. As I've said before, I understand how hard it is to consider other worldviews. Nevertheless, if you choose to ignore the Stoic worldview in your practice, you must accept that your mileage may vary. The connection between physics and ethics in Stoicism has been addressed thoroughly by the scholars. Those who are interested in taking a deeper look at that connection will find plenty of references in my blog posts on the connection between physics and ethics and the one on retaining the soul of Stoicism. Live in agreement with nature. That is one of the most famous doctrines of Stoicism, and it articulates that a virtuous life is one lived in agreement with nature. But what does it mean to live in agreement with nature? The Stoics did not mean that we should retreat to a cabin in the woods, even though that may be a good short-term strategy to develop some positive character traits. Ultimately, the goal of Stoicism is to prepare us to live excellent lives within society, not apart from it. Let's consider a long passage on this topic from Diogenes Laertius. He wrote, This is why Zeno was the first in his treatise on the nature of man 
to designate as the end, quote, life in agreement with nature, end quote, or living agreeably to nature, which is the same as a virtuous life, virtue being the goal toward which nature guides us. So too Cleanthes, in his treatise On Pleasure, and also Poseidonius and Hecato, in his work On Ends. Again, living virtuously is equivalent to living in accordance with experience of the actual course of nature, as Chrysippus says in the first book of his Definibus. For our individual natures are part of the nature of the whole universe, and this is why the end may be defined as life in accordance with nature, or in other words, in accordance with our own human nature as well as that of the universe. A life in which we refrain from every action forbidden by the law common to all things. That is to say, the right reason which pervades all things and is identical with this Zeus, Lord and ruler of all that is. And this very thing constitutes the virtue of the happy man and the smooth current of life when all actions promote the harmony of the spirit dwelling in the individual man with the will of him who orders the universe, end quote. Diogenes Laertius, 87 and 88. Now, A.A. Long provides a brilliant analysis of that passage, plus a little bit more from Diogenes Laertius, in order to explain the logical progression from impulse to virtue, which is the human goal. Long presents this in a 10-point logical sequence. Let's step through these one at a time. One. Nature creates all living things and provides them with the means of securing what is advantageous to them. Two, that which accords with nature is right. Three, nature directs all animals and children by a self-protective impulse. Four, given the premises above, it follows that it is advantageous and right for all animals and children to be directed by their self-protective impulse. Five. Nature directs all men to live by sound reason, self-protective impulse shaped by reason. 6. Therefore it is advantageous and right, it accords with nature, for all men to live by sound reason. 7. To live by sound reason is equivalent to living in accord with human nature, which is equivalent to living according to virtue. Eight. Therefore, it is advantageous and right for all men to live in accord with human nature and according to virtue. 9. Human nature is part of nature. 10. Therefore, it is advantageous and right for all men to live in accord with human nature and nature. And by nature, long means cosmic nature here. 11. To live in accord with nature entails obedience to nature's will, which is the equivalent to living by sound reason. And twelve, therefore, it is advantageous and right for all men deliberately to obey nature's will. Now, additionally, Long argues that nature and right reason are not synonymous, as some people tend to to argue in modern Stoicism. To live in agreement with nature entails more than living in agreement with human reason. Human reason is not the objective standard for an ethical life. Even modern history should make that point perfectly clear to all of us. As A.A. Long points out, the Stoics held the pursuit of the goal, referred to by the expressions 
acting according to reason, virtue, and human reason, to be a moral imperative, a command of nature or God. Seen in this light, the pursuit of virtue proves to be a moral obligation, independent of the fact that it's also in one's interest. Long uses sound reason here instead of right reason. He does that to make a point. In his conclusion, he argues against the logic of those who attempt to make human reason the standard of ethical life. He argues that this is, quote, a complete misrepresentation of the logical basis of Stoic ethics. He continues, quote, life according to reason is entailed by life according to nature, but life according to nature is not obligatory because it accords with reason. Nature stands to man as a moral law commanding him to live by rational principles, namely those principles of thought and action which nature, a perfect being, prescribes to itself and all rational beings. If living in agreement with nature is the goal, and we are to derive our moral imperative from an understanding of nature that leads us toward that goal, then we must assume nature is inherently purposeful. As I've asked before, what could it possibly mean to live in agreement with an accidental universe? As Tim Mulgan, the New Zealand philosopher and author of Purpose in the Universe, points out, objective value and cosmic purpose allow us to explain a number of puzzling general features of the cosmos, from the fact that there is something rather than nothing, to the fact that the universe is governed by precise, elegant mathematical laws, to the fact that it is a place where conscious, rational beings can emerge via processes of biological evolution. The atheist cannot explain any of these facts. He must regard them as brute facts, cosmic coincidences, just the way things happen to be. Without objective values, this brute fact response has some plausibility. If there is nothing special about the way things are, then why not admit that they just happen to be this way? After all, things had to be some way. But if things are an objectively special way, if the possibility that is realized is an unusually valuable one, then this does cry out for explanation. Objective values thus support cosmic purpose. For its part, cosmic purpose supports objective values. For those suspicious of freestanding moral facts, cosmic purpose offers something to ground mind-independent values. Perhaps moral facts are facts about cosmic purpose. End quote. In a fashion similar to that of the ancient Stoics, Mulgan is arguing that a purposeful cosmos, a purposeful universe, is necessary to provide the foundation for normative ethics. Likewise, he makes an argument for pragmatism when it comes to our evaluation of worldviews. In other words, we should judge worldviews by the kinds of behavior they ultimately produce. He writes, Is it fair to criticize a rival metaphysical picture for failing to motivate people to save the world? Here, once again, we encounter reasonable disagreement. Secular liberals, naturalist philosophers, and moderate non-consequentialists invariably find this sort of criticism absurd. But many religious people, and many utilitarians, will find it both pertinent and decisive. My own position lies somewhere in between. Perhaps no worldview can motivate the moral demands of utilitarianism. Perhaps this is too much to ask. But if one competing worldview can ground, explain, and motivate the morality our future seems to demand, then this should count very strongly 
in favor of both that worldview and the morality it supports. End quote. Now, the Stoics were not utilitarians. Nevertheless, Professor Mulgan's project is remarkably similar in some ways to that of the ancient Stoics. More importantly, we can ask this question of the Stoic worldview. If we accept the providential cosmos of the Stoics, does it have a positive impact on our psychology and our behavior? In his work on the meditations of Marcus Aurelius, Christopher Gill of Exeter University argues that Marcus uses the providence or Adam's disjunction in Meditations 4.3.5 and, quote, sometimes elsewhere in Meditations, quote, simply to reassure himself of the providential nature of the universe, that it is a kind of city as assumed in Stoic theory, and to reaffirm his conviction in the Stoic worldview and thus provide himself with ethical and emotional support, end quote. As Jean-Baptiste Gourinat explained in his 2009 article titled Stoicism Today, cognitive therapy is based on three hypotheses, the first of which is, quote, one's behavior springs from one's view of oneself and the world, and our psychological difficulties and disturbances derive from these views and from our misconceived perception of external events, end quote. Therefore, our worldview does matter. Again, many people reflexively recoil from the Stoic conception of a providential cosmos. I get that. Nevertheless, I think that everyone who self-identifies as a Stoic and attempts to follow the Stoic path should take the time to fully consider the Stoic worldview before rejecting it with a wave of the hand as ancient religious nonsense. The Stoic worldview is likely not what you think that it is. It is unlike anything that modern Westerners are exposed to in our educational system. The following quote from Tim Mulgan highlights a theological position that is similar to the Stoic conception of God. He writes, Theist arguments, if they succeed, establish that there is a God of some sort. Atheist arguments, if they succeed, show that there is not a God of one specific sort. So why not cut and paste the positive and negative arguments and thus end up with a God of a different sort? End quote. Now that is exactly, in my opinion, where the Stoic conception of the divine falls, between the poles of atheism on one end and full-blown theism on the other. The providential cosmos of the Stoics is certainly a god of a different sort. Still, even if we accept that the universe has a purpose, and that it is in our best interest to align ourselves with that purpose, how do we derive ethical norms from nature? The Stoics start to build that theory at the place where we all begin our lives, at birth. The concept is called oikiosis, and interestingly, this foundational Stoic ethical doctrine is derived from Stoic physics. Once again, this highlights the interdependence of the parts that comprise the Stoic philosophical system, and should make it poignantly clear that we cannot simply ignore Stoic physics. As John Sellers of the University of Oxford writes, quote, the foundation for Stoic ethics is a doctrine that has its own basis in physics, that is, in the nature of living beings. This is the doctrine of oikiosis, end quote. Scholars offer several translations for the Greek word oikiosis. I prefer affinity. I think it describes the process by which our natural self-interest for survival expands to include the interests of others as we grow and become more rational. The Stoics observe that all creatures have a natural affinity for themselves, for their own survival. However, unlike animals, 
We humans do not have to remain bound to those instincts as we mature. We can use our rational faculty to judge our instincts and determine if they are impulses to appropriate or inappropriate actions. However, making proper judgments like that does require some education and moral training. A child's natural affinity will be limited to their self-interest, and this will cause them to cry when they're hungry or uncomfortable without regard for others. Now, this natural affinity makes a child well-disposed for self-preservation because crying gets them attention from their caregivers that they need. However, as a child matures, they must become well-disposed to survive in other relationships beyond that of their immediate caregivers. These include other members of society, of a larger nation, a town, and hopefully all of humanity. Interestingly, Paul Bloom, the Yale professor of psychology, in his 2013 book, Just Babies, The Origin of Good and Evil, points to a large body of evidence that supports the Stoic idea that while we are born as blank slates without any knowledge, we nevertheless have innate preconceptions about good and bad. Children, at very young ages, develop a sense of fairness and justice, and that is observable in experiments. I highly recommend his book. At first glance, the Stoic practice of oikiosis may appear to contradict the practice of circumscribing the self, of developing that inner citadel, and considering all externals to be indifference. After all, doesn't Stoicism teach us that everything beyond our thoughts, judgments, and intentions is beyond our control? Yes, it does. Moreover, doesn't Stoicism teach us that none of those externals have any bearing on our moral character? Yes, it does. However, we make an exceedingly large mistake if we assume that the practice of Stoicism stops at the perimeter of our cranium and the length of our physical reach. As William Hyde wrote almost prophetically in 1911, modern apostles of essential Stoic principle incline to paint the world in rosette hues of merely optional optimism. They want to be well and happy and serene and self-satisfied. They think they are, and thinking makes them so. If Stoicism had been as superficial as that, as capricious, as temperamental, and individualistic, it would not have lasted as it has for more than 2,000 years. End quote. If you come to the Stoa solely for self-help, to discover a few mind hacks that will make you more successful in business, professional sports, etc., I will suggest that you've come to the right place, but for all the wrong reasons. The goal of Stoic practice far exceeds the personal equanimity that we can gain through the discipline of assent and desire. Stoic practice is not primarily about personal equanimity. If that's what you're looking for, the Epicurean Garden may be a more appropriate place for you than the Stoa, which finds its home within the metaphorical marketplace of humanity, with all the tumult that exists therein. In fact, the disciplines of assent and desire prepare the Stoic practitioner for the discipline of action in those places and circumstances where our equanimity will be tested. As Pierre Hedot writes at the opening of his chapter on the discipline of action, quote, The result of the discipline of desire, as we saw, was to bring people inner serenity and peace of mind, since it consisted in the joyful consent to everything that happens to us through the agency of universal nature and reason, amor fatigue, or the love of fate, thus led us to want that which the cosmos wants, to want what happens and to want what happens to us. 
This fine serenity risks being disturbed by the discipline of active impulse and action. Since in this case, it is a matter of acting, not accepting, we now must engage our responsibility, not just consent. We must enter into relations with other beings, our fellow creatures, who provoke our passions precisely because they are our fellow creatures, beings whom we must love, although they are often hateful. End quote. The process of oikiosis, expanding our affinity to include all of humanity and the cosmos, relies upon the psychological strength and tranquility derived from the circumscribed self, the inner citadel. We need a strong inner citadel so that we can act virtuously toward others while maintaining a tranquil state of mind. It is only from a place of inner strength and tranquility that we can participate in our proper social roles. Neurotic souls tossed about by the chaos of external events lack the inner strength to venture into the chaos that typically accompanies human societies. Nevertheless, we must be careful not to find so much comfort in the inner citadel that we remain there. Stoics do not retreat from society to find peace of mind. They stand in the midst of the chaos and work toward the common goals of human flourishing and justice. Why? Because that is what virtue is. Human excellence demands it. Humans are social creatures. We are not intended to live in isolation. In fact, none of the virtues, wisdom, courage, justice, or temperance, make much sense at all outside of social context. With proper training, our affinity reaches beyond our self-interest and encircles the well-being of our immediate family and friends, our locality, our nation, the entire world, and finally, the entirety of the conscious cosmos. Why? Because everything is interconnected in the same cosmic web, and we are all related, not by blood, but by the fact that we share a portion of the same divine mind, as Marcus points out in Meditations 2.1 a portion of the divine creative fire that permeates the entire cosmos also exists within each of us. Now that we have covered some essentials of ethical theory, next week we will dive into the spiritual practice known as the discipline of action. Through the disciplined use of our human reason, we can understand and connect with universal reason and thereby see the cosmos and our fellow human beings in an entirely different light. That new perspective will allow us to engage in the world of externals in an appropriate way, in a manner that leads to the development of our character and toward the experience of well-being for us, for all of humanity, and for the cosmos as a whole. Thank you for listening to the Stoicism on Fire podcast. If you're interested in this ancient practice of Stoicism, you will find plenty of resources at www.traditionalstoicism.com. If you're interested in a social media environment where this form of Stoicism is discussed, please join us on Facebook in the Traditional Stoicism group. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a positive review on the platform where you listen to this podcast. That tells others this podcast is worth listening to and thereby introduces more people to the ancient spiritual practices of the Stoics. If you have feedback or a great podcast idea for me, send me an email at chris, that's C-H-R-I-S, at traditionalstoicism.com. Until next time, I hope you will continue exploring traditional stoicism where the cosmos is alive with the meaning and purpose of the divine creative fire of the ancient Stoics. I wish you well and encourage you to keep your practice of stoicism 
on fire.